Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. On this week's Miranda Warnings, we welcome Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Caudry in London, England. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the EU's GDPR. We'll talk about what that is and why it's important. Jonathan is a partner at the Cadre firm. He concentrates on technology and compliance. And significantly, uh, he has been ranked as the sixth most influential figure in risk and compliance in the UK and the 14th most influential figure in data security worldwide. Um, and also, Jonathan is one of the top 10 influential uh, podcast guests on Miranda Warning. So, Jonathan, uh, it's great to have uh, a person of your great stature talking to us that's, about That's very kind. Thank you. Thank Pleasure you. to be here. Thank you, Jonathan, for being here. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the GDPR. Now, my understanding is that that's an acronym for Full Employment Act for Privacy Lawyers. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. And as you know, I've, I've still got two daughters to push through university. So you're saying that as if there's some negative connotations, which from my seat, I'm not seeing. But um, there's probably more to GDPR even, even than educating bright daughters. Um, it's part of an all-encompassing attachment to privacy and data protection issues that the EU's had since at least the Second World War. And oftentimes in the US, it's quite hard to understand uh, parts of Europe's attachment to privacy. And it really is that historical because of the actions of the Nazi regime, for example, against certain sectors of the population at that time, notably, of course, the terrors of the Holocaust, then people in Europe have valued their personal data more than perhaps people in the US where they haven't had that cultural understanding. And so we've had privacy law since, um, as I say, since the Second World War in parts of Europe. That um, trend has mirrored with other countries that weren't part of that experience, Portugal, for example, that had a, a regime change in the 70s, in, introduced legislation soon after. And in the mid-1980s, we had an attempt, uh, sorry, the mid-1990s, we had an attempt to bring some unity to that uh, law across Europe. That failed. And GDPR is, if you like, attempt 2.0 at bringing some harmonization to data privacy, data protection law across the EU. And I'm afraid, Dave, spoiler alert, it's already failed. How has it failed? How has it failed? Well, the, the original equation, if you like, was that GDPR would reduce the burden on corporations it would do that in part by eliminating the need to register with a regulator before you handle data in a similar way than if you're going to drive a car, you have to obtain a driver's license beforehand. So that sort of concept existed in about half the EU. 
before GDPR, and the promise was that that regime would go. And then secondly, GDPR introduced a regime called one-stop shop, which should mean that if, for example, you're a U.S. corporation, you deal with one EU regulator rather than all of them for any given episode. And there's all sorts of mechanisms as to how that lead regulator would be assessed and, uh, and they would lead the investigation. What, However, see, what we're seeing now is that we ha you do have that one harmonized regulation for the entire EU, but then each of the nations in the EU have also uh, kept uh, their own regulations that also must be complied with if you're doing business there. So now, in addition to having to deal with each nation, you have to deal with this other uh, larger, uh, potentially harmonized uh, regulation. So it's really just added another layer. Is that is that correct? But, yeah, that's correct. And both of those promises for the benefits to business, the, the registration requirement was reimposed by the UK government, partly because of uh, Brexit, perhaps, and the need to raise cash. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. And the second, the one-stop shop mechanism, has not worked in practice. So we've seen things like Google, where the lead regulator under one-stop shop would be Ireland being prosecuted, if you like, by French authorities, investigated by Swedish authorities, rather than doing that through Ireland. And as you rightly say, other countries have taken the opportunity to bolt new law on top of GDPR. So in the UK, for example, we created three specific new criminal offences as part of the changes that we did to bring in GDPR. In Germany, they've, they've altered their domestic law, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So unfortunately, that harmony that we expected under GDPR hasn't happened. But what has happened is this huge consumerization of privacy actions so that individuals can complain much more readily to a regulator to ask them to investigate privacy regulations. And that means that as at the end of January, some 95,180 complaints had been law lodged in the EU for GDPR violations. And in addition, some 41,500 data breaches had been notified to the EU authorities. So this huge uptick in regulatory activity concerning data and privacy. Well, Jonathan, you mentioned that because of uh, historical experience, uh, the govern governments uh, of nations in the EU ha have uh, a greater, uh, put of greater value on uh, privacy and privacy protection as compared to, for example, the United States. What are some of the examples of privacy laws that are in place in nations in the EU that uh, we don't have here uh, in the United States? Well, one of the interesting points is that GDPR, as I say, gives more power to the hands of individuals. And those individuals include employees. So even if an employee is given a laptop or a mobile device by his employer, even if it's only for work purposes, then they still likely have privacy rights for any data that's on that device or any use they have, you know, to send emails, text messages, whatever that might be. And individuals have more rights to look at the data that an organization holds on them. And an interesting wrinkle of GDPR is that that 
rights also might apply to U.S. citizens. So we've one case so far involving Cambridge Analytica and the interference in elections. And in that case, a U.S. professor, Professor David Carroll, made a request to a U.K. entity saying that he also had data protection rights. Now, unfortunately, the organization replied uh, in perhaps uh, injudicious tones, saying that an American citizen had as many rights as the Taliban under data protection law. Uh, Professor Carroll complained to the regulator. The regulator said that they had a different interpretation to the Cambridge Analytica entities, and the regulator was advised to uh, stop all this harassing correspondence. Now, surprise, surprise, when you deal with a regulator that way, it didn't end well, and uh, and the company involved pleaded guilty to some criminal violations of, of privacy law. And uh, obviously, we all know as lawyers that um, unsatisfactory cases make bad law. But at least in the short term, it seems that all of these new rights under GDPR, the right to be forgotten, the right to uh, data portability, the right to know the data that, you, that organizations have on you, may also apply to U.S. citizens as well if there's some connection with an EU entity. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Cambridge Analytica case because that uh company uh, also uh, has been important in the United States. They were involved in gathering data uh, in relation to the 2016 presidential election, and that has been fairly controversial. What was the issue that uh, they were uh, found to be responsible for uh, in the case that you're talking about in, in the EU? Yeah, this has been a wide-ranging investigation into the uh, political interference in elections. It's led in this case by the Information Commissioner, the UK data privacy regulator. She has about 40 uh, permanent members of staff on it and about 20 contractors. And we've had quite a lot of cases coming out of this as a result. So. Um, there's an ongoing investigation into Facebook and the data sharing they did with a guy called Kogan and Cambridge Analytica. And then we've also had a, a civil monetary penalty against an organization called uh, Emma's Diary that sold data relating to uh, pregnant and, uh, and uh, pregnant uh, women and recently um, uh, you know, th those who'd given birth recently for uh, political influencing as well, so that things like nursery place policies could be pushed up in their Facebook timeline to procure their vote for one party over another. So this investigation is ongoing. It's been going on for around about 18 months already, and we are starting to see some of these cases um, you know, reach some sort of conclusion with the regulator. Most of this stuff is pre-GDPR, although there is an ongoing um, investigation into a 
Canadian entity that was also involved in uh, electioneering. And they originally had a post-GDPR, what's called a stop processing notice, to tell them you can't process data on EU uh, nationals anymore. That's been um, negotiated away as part of an appeal. And the ICO has agreed to take second uh, chair, if you like, behind the Canadian authorities in that investigation. But the investigation is all-encompassing. And it is including, at least peripherally, some of the allegations against um, influencing all sorts of things in the U.S. Uh, yes elections um, and, um, and, and elections globally, although the main focus, of course, is things like our Brexit election, where, again, the Information Commission has taken enforcement action through that election being... Um, influenced in some respects by exchanging data with commercial organizations. Well, we've seen that in the United States with Facebook. And as you as you indicated before, you know, traditionally we were not as concerned with privacy, but I think that has, that has changed. The pendulum is swinging here uh, in the colonies over the last few <laughs> years, uh, as specifically with respect to Facebook, where there was uh, substantial data gathering and exchanging that uh, there, you know, potentially was uh, a, a sign-off for. Uh, but, you know, you would have to, you know, spend hours and hours uh, reading the terms of uh, agreement uh, to get to exactly uh, what is going on. And in some instances, there was no uh, explanation of exactly what was going on. And in some cases, it was perhaps uh, done surreptitiously. Uh, what what kind of lessons can we learn, and and is there anything from what the EU is is learning with respect to the GDPR that that perhaps the United States can uh, take away uh, and uh, utilize as we're trying to come up with legislation to better protect uh, our citizens, really from themselves uh, in many respects, because all of this exchange of information is is for the most part voluntary. Yeah, I think one of the trends that we've seen in the last year or so in privacy law over here is this increasing insistence on transparency. So under the old uh, data privacy law, we always had this requirement that you had to be lawful and transparent with people when handling their data. But we've really seen a renewed emphasis on that. Almost every case that we see has transparency as a core element. So even if it's a data breach case, they might say, well, you made promises to keep people's data secure and you didn't live up to those promises. So in some respects, we're um, really emphasizing the fact that you have to be as good as you were. And equally, in cases like the Google, this large GDPR fine we've just seen, regulators are saying, and if you're relying on consent, by the way, then you're going to have to be really clear about what constitutes consent and what people are consenting to. So you can't have bits of your privacy practice in eight different notices in eight different places. It needs to be in one clear, accessible statement in plain English and written as your demographic would expect to read it. So if you're targeting 13-year-old kids, 
then the language that you use has to be appropriate to 13-year-old kids. Now, that doesn't mean, I, I know like you do to relate to the kids, Dave, it doesn't mean wearing a baseball cap backwards and talking in rap, but it does mean using some... Hey, Jonathan, that's my thing. <laughs> I know. It's not I know just that. for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> but it does mean doing something appropriate for that age group, and that might be a YouTube-style video explaining what your privacy policy is rather than saying to them, you know, um, we've had um, a law professor do a treatise on privacy and it's attached as Appendix A. So it's going to be, uh, you know, demographic appropriate ways of doing it. And we're also probably going to have to chunk privacy policies down. So if we're doing something particularly aggressive with somebody's data, like, I don't know, we're taking resumes on our website and we're sharing them with officers in different locations, then we're going to have to signpost that specifically. So transparency, I think, is probably our key element of GDPR, and that will be a real feature. You know, if I had my crystal ball out, I'd say in about 70% of the GDPR cases, we'll see the lack of transparency being criticized. Jonathan, you mentioned the recent uh, fine uh, that Google had, 50, uh, about $57 million. Uh, Google was fined by France for breaching the EU's data privacy rules under the GDPR. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about that. Uh, now, so this was an EU data privacy rule, but it, the the uh, protagonist here was, uh, was France. Uh, does each country... Uh, enforce these uh, rules separately? Yeah, it does. So, so GDPR hasn't unified the police force, if you like. There's no central Brussels-based data privacy police. We've got a regulator in every EU jurisdiction except for Germany, which has regulators on a regional level. There's a whole host of interesting things about this case. And, of course, um, in some respects, uh, New York State Bar had a had a, a, a spoiler alert of its own with this case, as some of you will know. I think you were there, Dave, uh, in Paris um, a couple of years ago. We had uh, Max Schrems speak to the NYSBA International Section meeting and tell us about this type of complaint that he would be making. And the Google case is the product of that um, strategy that Max Schrems outlined when he met with us in Paris. So as the clock ticked from midnight on 25th of May 2018 and GDPR came into force, Max Schrems and his pressure group, NOYB, uh, made some fairly detailed complaints to a number of EU regulators about the privacy practice of a number of U.S. corporations. And he was, in some respects, supported uh, by uh, La Quadratude Net, which is a French-based pressure group, which also made complaints in the very early days of GDPR going live. La Quadratude Net said that they represented I think 10,000 French citizens in this complaint against Google. And the complaints were largely about the way in which online advertising works and largely about uh, Android particularly and mobile advertising and whether people had consented and whether Google had been transparent enough 
in uh, what they did with their data. And Google found that they had, uh, and, the, and Keneal, the French data privacy regulator, found that they had not. Now, one of the interesting elements for U.S. corporations is, of course, the fact that uh, as far as data is concerned, then Google said that decisions were made uh, in its uh, U.S. operation as to what to do with Android data. Now, oftentimes, organizations try and use this argument thinking that it will reduce the impact of GDPR. And in fact, the opposite is true. You know, when I was over for the annual meeting, I was trying to look at some uh, information from a Long Island-based website. And it said, you know, we don't comply with GDPR. You have a, an EU IP address. You can't use the site. Well, it does the opposite of what you intend that to do. That means that every EU regulator can have a piece of you rather than just one. It's instructive that the day after this case, Google announced that they were changing where decisions were made about EU data and that those decisions would now be made by its Irish subsidiary in part so that Ireland becomes the regulator for the whole of the EU operations rather than every regulator having a piece of the pie. And what's likely to happen with this case is that other regulators will pile in. Sweden has already said it will investigate. The UK has said it will investigate. And they, of course, can also fine up to 4% of Google's annual revenue. So these could be truly significant fines in other jurisdictions. My guess is this $57 million is, is unfortunately just the start of the story rather than the end. You mentioned Jonathan uh, Max Schrems, who did appear at the New York State Bar Association's International Section meeting in, in Paris a few years back. Uh, tell us a little bit about Max Schrems and why he's uh, significant. He is just a, a citizen who has uh, who is bringing complaints about uh, data privacy violations uh, in, the EU, in the EU, and he is really... Uh, in some instances, the one that uh, gets the ball rolling on uh, enforcement of of some of these rules. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, we haven't had the tradition that you have had in the U.S. of, of privacy activism groups. Trems was a law student when he brought his first action against Facebook, which led to the collapse of Safe Harbor, the deal that had been in place between the U.S and the EU over the transfer of data from the EU to the US. And he did that, you know, almost alone with the help of some attorneys. But, but you know, for a law student to bring proceedings in which the US government felt they had to intervene, I, I think is an illustration of how much power individuals have under data privacy law in Europe. Um, he now has set up his own pressure group called uh, NOYB, and they have a number of significant campaigns uh, in at the moment with, with um, fairly detailed complaints about a number of organizations, as well as this complaint about Android. There are complaints, for example, about the operation of YouTube, about the operation of streaming services, and how... I think the objection is how streaming services can make all sorts of predictions about individuals 
based on the music they listen to or the films they watch, which they can then monetize by selling to advertisers. So often these complaints try to get at things that aren't in the public domain. You know, who knew that people were running algorithms to record the fact that, you know, I, I don't know how the algorithm works, but if I listen to a majority Barbara Streisand, does that mean that I'm going to be, I don't know, send messaging for um, spa treatments? I don't know what the correlation is that they're doing under these uh, algorithms, but it's fascinating to see, A, that people are making money out of those correlations, and B, that there are pressure groups willing to research all of that stuff and, and bring complaints where they think it's necessary. Jonathan, let's talk a little bit about law firms that might uh, be interested in what's going on with this data privacy law firms in the United States that may have uh, perhaps clients uh, in the EU, EU uh, that may have uh, either a satellite office or an of counsel uh, overseas. How might they need to be concerned about the uh, GDPR regulations uh, as they apply to them and, and their transactions? That's a, that's a great point. I mean, just because you're not in the EU doesn't mean to say you're not covered by GDPR. And the whole intention of GDPR was that it would have extraterritorial reach. So if you offer goods or services into the EU, even if you don't charge for them, then you are subject to GDPR. That could be as little as you know, offering people in the EU the opportunity to sign up for a webinar, uh, sending alerts to them, allowing them to be subscribers on your email distribution list, et cetera, et cetera. And equally, if you profile or monitor the behavior of individuals in the EU, then you're caught as well. So that could be things like e-discovery. If you're sweating data as part of e-discovery on behalf of the client, if you're doing an internal investigation on behalf of a client, then your client is likely to be subject to GDPR but you, the law firm, could well be as well. So you're going to need to make sure that you comply with GDPR, both because you've got to comply with EU law and also because, of course, as a matter of practice, you have to comply with the law as part of your ethics obligations as an attorney. So these are fairly significant impositions, I think, for law firms that are not based in the EU. Jonathan, we talked a little bit about how some of the uh, data was uh, used and manipulated uh, with respect to the U.S. election, presidential election in 2016. Some similar uh, conduct occurred uh, in, in Great Britain with respect to the Brexit vote. Uh, at around the same time, we saw similar issues uh, with respect to uh, the use of data in ways that were attempts to influence uh, political views and voting. Uh, and, uh, you know, now we're faced uh, in, in Great Britain with this uh, Brexit situation that seems 
uh, you know, uh, it, like we're at a standoff, uh, which we certainly here in the U.S. are familiar with uh, governmental standoffs. But uh, what's your what's your view on on what's going on with uh, the potential outcome of this uh, Brexit situation? And then secondly, how is it going to affect uh, uh, Great Britain's uh, impact on uh, or effect of data privacy? Yeah, I, I think the latter piece is is relatively easy. I think that the uh, the UK will still obviously have data privacy law. We have a sort of a catch-all piece of legislation that's already through Parliament, which effectively says that if there's a no-deal Brexit and the UK falls out of the EU, then GDPR will still apply, but as a piece of domestic legislation rather than EU legislation. So that bit is relatively sane. Um, we do need, however, if you're a US corporation, you do need to make sure, though, that by uh, the end of March or mid-March, preferably, you have a legal agreement in place to secure the transfer of data from the UK to the US. Now, it might be that you can adapt some existing agreement that you've got, but you do need some sort of provision in place. If, that agreement be with? Uh, so commonly you would do that uh, uh, intra-group, for example. So say you're a US law firm and you have a London office, and that's a separate LLP, then you'd have an agreement between those two entities to transfer data from the US office to the US office. So you'd need some sort of written agreement in place. And most people are probably doing that by what's called standard contractual clauses at the moment, to be technical, which is an EU-promoted standard agreement. And probably... EU standard contractual clauses won't uh, survive any Brexit. And I, and I say any Brexit because I'm, I'm still not convinced it's a done deal, but we have to prepare for a no-deal Brexit, which, as I say, could happen as early as the end of March. So this is a rapidly evolving uh, piece, um, and obviously people have to keep monitoring it, but um, certainly from my perspective, you know, we're already doing our Brexit contingency planning predicated on the fact that there is a no-deal Brexit. And a no-deal Brexit it, means that you, you don't leave? No, a no-deal Brexit means that we leave without a deal. So we go to what's called the WTO uh, uh, conditions. So effectively, currently, of course, the EU operates almost like a like a common single market, a little bit like, I mean, not the same as, a little bit like the US. So we have free trade, people can move between states, et cetera, et cetera. If there's a no-deal Brexit, it means that all of the EU arrangements go, so there's no freedom of movement, and important, importantly in this context, there's no free movement of data. So you'd have to have agreements in place to transfer data between the EU and the UK, between the US and the EU, and between the UK and the US. So it just increases that level of complexity. And, and, and right now what's trying to be negotiated is that uh, 
the UK will be out of the uh, EU uh, generally, but still keeps uh, through this separate deal, still keeps some of the some of the benefits and and agreements and policies that are in place already, and that's the part that's uh, really the sticking point. Yeah, the, the the difficulty is that the um, the prime minister uh, Theresa May uh, agreed a provisional deal, if you like, with the EU that would um, uh, ease the uh, exit of the UK from the EU. However, that deal failed to pass Parliament. There was then a uh, effectively a vote on whether the government should switch and the May administration would terminate early. And that vote was won by the Prime Minister. So we're in this odd situation of she doesn't have the power to sign the deal with the EU and the opposition party doesn't have the power to remove her. So currently if you like, she sort of sat in the chair, ready to sign the deal, but she's not allowed a pen. Um, so this will resolve in one of a number of ways. It'll either resolve by the UK leaving the EU at the end of March with no deal. So we're in complete chaos as, uh, as far as agreement uh, terms with the uh, with the EU are concerned, and also, of course some turmoil in the relationship between the UK and the US because it's an EU trade deal with the US currently, not an individual trade deal. And we know how, um, what would the polite word be, contrary your current president's thoughts are on trade deals from time to time. Um, so, so that bit would be a mess. And there'd be all sorts of other you know, UK constitutional aspects that would be very challenging as well. My obviously this is complete crystal ball time. My expectation would be that there is a scenario when the March deadline gets extended to give the UK and the EU time to do a slightly different deal. As we talk, Theresa May is in Ireland trying to shore up some support in Ireland for some slightly different deal, which she's then going to go to Brussels tomorrow and try and sell to the EU, her chances of doing that are not great. So I think any prudent lawyer, any prudent client has to be prepared for a no-deal Brexit. And, and that's a horrifying scenario, but one that's becoming more likely. Well, Jonathan, if the, if, uh, the UK does leave Brexit, uh, what about uh, coming back and joining the colonies? Uh, we had a good run many years back. It might be it might be time, you know. I, I think that's an excellent idea. I mean, I think um, you know I often say to American friends that you know just as sometimes you know like the prodigal son returned, then um, and just sometimes you know incalcitrant teenagers come back home to mummy, then I'm hoping that there's some reunion between the UK and the US that saves the day. Although um, although my reading of US politics is there are some people there that would need to behave a, a little better than they do currently. 
Well, I like the part about when Parliament, uh, when they don't like what's going on, they shout and heckle. Um, that's always uh, very entertaining. I think our our football might improve, and uh, you know maybe we might up your your cricket game uh, a little. Yeah, bit. And, and maybe we could have England Patriots versus New England Patriots. <laughs> a bit of competition for them. Well, Jonathan, it's been great talking to you about all these uh, very fascinating issues. We have a feature here on Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie. So is there one that you'd like to share with us? Well, this has been my toughest choice of the whole podcast, I have to tell you, Dave. Um, I Most came... important choice also. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, okay, uh, and I can think of messages from my two choices I was left with. I came over and saw an excellent production of My Fair Lady at the Lincoln Center when I was in New York a week or so ago, which is good and I'd recommend to people. And there's all sorts of lessons for a post-Brexit UK there about class and people feeling marginalized, you know, which led to the Brexit vote, which some might argue led to your president being in power as well. But in the end, I chose, drum roll please, Oklahoma, in part for family reasons, my daughter, uh, who you've met actually, Lucinda, um, has just played the orchestra of a semi-professional production of Oklahoma to great acclaim, but also because I thought there were lessons for our politics in that as well. You know, Oklahoma, let's skip the bit about um, suicide and bullying uh, for these purposes. But many bits of Oklahoma are about the American dream, aren't they? They're about the pioneering spirit. They're about that go-out-and-get mentality. And I think both of our countries could do with a dose of that being restored as well, ours perhaps more than yours. But at the same time, it's also a story in many respects about unity, about, you know, cowboys and farmers getting along, people with different backgrounds, people with different um, uh, motivations in life. And, and perhaps that's a message we could learn at the, mo at the moment as well. You know, our perspectives might be different. Our outlook on life might be different. But wouldn't it be good to return to positivity? A lot of politics at the moment is about people objecting to things they don't like without suggesting any alternative at all, shouldn't we return to a spirit of trying to rub along together just as cowboys and farmers did in Oklahoma, and wouldn't the world be a better place for that? Well, Jonathan, I think it would, and I appreciate uh, your, your sharing your expertise here and your perspective, which is always interesting and, and uh, provocative, and we thank you very much, Jonathan Armstrong, for being on Miranda Warnings to talk about uh, the GDPR and Brexit and privacy and Oklahoma. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jonathan. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings for all things legal and some that aren't. <laughs>